0: How can we overcome chronic pain?
1: The only way to relieve it and give it it relief is to face it. You just have to. It's the only way to get stronger. How do you make sense of your feelings? English is my second language and emotion is my first.
0: How can we be useful to those around
1: us? If helping means removing obstacles from someone's life so they don't have to feel pain, that's not good helping.
0: This week, writer and memoirist Amanda Stern on Nine Questions with Eric Oliver.
2: Hey, Dre, how are you?
0: Hey, Eric. Good morning. How are you?
2: I'm great. Um, How's Utah?
0: Utah is really beautiful.
2: If no one, if
0: you guys haven't been here, you should come. It's the mountains are gorgeous.
2: And just tell everyone what you're doing in Utah.
0: (laughs) I am working on a show at the Pioneer Theater Company called Scapan. And it's hilarious and fun, right? Isn't it? It is a Molière play. Very good. I'm impressed. Yeah,
2: me busting out the (laughs) cultural
0: references. (laughs) (laughs) Not just a hat rack.
2: Not just a hat rack. No, not me. Um, all right. Why don't you tell everybody about Amanda, this week's guest?
0: Sure. Amanda Stern is the author of The Long Call and 11 books for children written under the pseudonyms A.J. Stern and Fiona Rosenblum. In 2003, she founded the legendary Happy Ending Music and Reading series, which required creative artists to take risks on stage. It was produced at Joe's Pub and later at Symphony Space. And her most recent book is Little Panic a memoir about growing up in an undiagnosed panic disorder. Amanda is a mental health advocate, speaker, and advisory board member for Bring Change to Mind.
2: And I wanted to talk to Amanda because I was very curious how someone who's had to cope with a lifelong panic disorder knows himself. Like, what does that condition do? And Amanda is amazing. Um, Mm -hmm. She's probably one of the wisest people I've ever met. And it's incredible to hear her story about how living and learning to live with this disorder basically gave her insights into her own living condition. So, and she's really funny and just a great, warm human being. (laughs) So I really, really liked my interview with Amanda. It was fantastic. And I think you will like it too.
0: If you want to listen to more interesting guests, join us, meet us, Come to us at NineQuestions.com. Which one do you want? All of those. I dash question. <laughs> all of those.
2: Yeah. Just come.
0: <laughs>
2: we, we, we've got, got, com. just come, we come. got
0: all the guests.
2: we got all the guests. we got a lot of ways
0: though. Yeah.
2: Once again, Amanda, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And why don't we start with question one, which is what are you?
1: Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, this is very nerve-wracking and exciting at the same time, like life. Um, so me. Okay. I feel like I'm I'm an in, uh, we're all interpreters. We're all interpreters and we're all fiction. You know, we're just interpreting what's happening at all times, but It's through a subjective filter. So my experience of the world is wildly different than your experience of the world, even if we think we experience the same things. So we're all interpreters and we give or make meaning from what it is that we interpret. Um, I feel like I also... At the core of what I am is just a big, um, a big system of emotion, um, and feeling and sensation. And like I'm one, the one somatic experience after another. That's what I am. Um, my childhood was very, um, traumatic in that I lived trapped inside my body um i was i had a what we didn't know then was a panic disorder <clears throat> excuse me and my panic was really chronic it was constant and i've suffered from it since i was probably nonverbal. Um, i don't have any memory of life without panic or anxiety um and when you don't have the language to articulate or express your feeling or the emotion in your body, the sensation that your body is, is giving you, it's extremely hard to survive and exist. And um, so I spent a majority, I, I spent the first 25 years of my life encased in uh, inside my body uh, terrified of what was happening in there it's a very hard experience to explain even having written a book about it it's still uh-huh. really hard to explain um but uh living with a sense of apprehension and dread constantly and knowing what triggers you and what might might trigger you and then living your life avoiding all of those triggers makes your life incredibly small. English is my second language and emotion is my first because I was so I was enveloped by it and swallowed by it for you know for so long and without the vocabulary to describe it. Um, you know, panic is a sensation and anxiety is a sensation. So those are my those are the most consistent experiences that I've felt in my body, my entire life.
2: Uh, why don't we move to question two, okay. uh, which is what is your purpose?
1: So I'm not really sure it's up to me to decide what my purpose is. I, I feel like, you know, when I was very, very young, my purpose felt like it was just to survive. Um, and You know, it shifted as I got older and it became about facing my fear so that the world doesn't feel so hard for me. Um, So my purpose has been in the past very immediate and about survival and um, about sort of training my body to feel relief from fear. And as I've gotten older, um, I'm, I've i have more sort of distance from that idea of purpose and sort of clinging to it or deciding what it is, you know. Um,
2: so can I ask you, I mean, from what you've been saying so far, it seems interesting. It seems like if I, from just the way you've described yourself, and I was going to come back to you and say, well, you have... Some hypersensitive antennae out there that are registering potential threats, and your body is taking this in, and in a way that it seems like you spend you're you're sensing threat everywhere, and there's a sense of peril mm-hmm. that your body is registering for mm-hmm. you, mm-hmm. Um, and in a way that other people are not sensitized to so you're you you have to go through life with this hyper attuned sense of your body saying ah mm-hmm. <laughs> yes um and so um in some ways you know your a purpose is like how do you live with that
1: yeah i feel like i feel like i live in a different register than other people N- not in the sense that i'm more or less attuned but in the sense that i'm not yet there where other where a lot of other people are which is without this layer of panic and anxiety that they have to fight just to like get to the other side of in order to experience what they experience naturally without this so i've always felt behind in some way um and delayed and late and as i've gotten older i've i've wrestled with that a lot and decided that that's just utter bullshit and, um, the, the sense that I'm delayed and late, um, you know, I've, I've done work in my life on myself that a lot of people much older than me haven't even begun. So it's not that I'm behind or ahead. It's, I'm just at a different, I'm doing a late stage earlier. Uh (laughs)
2: Uh-huh. Um, so let's move on to question three then. Uh, so question three is who are you really?
1: So at some point when I was younger, like in my teens, maybe, um, I had this sort of shocking and horrifying revelation that there is no me inside my body or inside anyone's body. There's no I like, where is it? It's nowhere. You can open me up and you can find my organs and my fascia and my muscles and my tendons, but you will not find me. There's no I to be found. And there's no anxiety to be found or panic. And that really messed me up for a long time. And I I felt, um, because I felt so much, And I wanted to know, like, who's doing the feeling if there's no I?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, who's the feeler here? Um, So, you know, it's a hard question to answer when there is no I. You know, who am I really? How
2: how did you resolve
1: that? Um, I don't know if I did. Um, I think what I ultimately ended up realizing or wondering is if underneath all that i've had to battle with is some original self some original core me that would have felt uh more congruent or more concrete um i guess it was a question of well maybe it's just me maybe other people feel their I more strongly Maybe it's a a function of my inability to do things correctly. Um, Maybe other people, you know, would laugh if I, if I said like, there's no me, but, um, but I don't think I reconciled it. I I think I just um, appreciated the fact that I'm just recycled, (laughs) you know, I'm, I am tons of recycled atoms and um, so there really can't be a me cause I'm not made of, I'm made of so many, we're made of so many different things, you know? Uh-huh.
2: And, um, well, I, one, one thing that I, I talk, I'm mm-hmm. writing about and I talk about with, to me, the who question is, is really about our social identities, uh, because mm-hmm. who is contingent upon language and mm-hmm. language of course is what we have to be social. Um, uh, cause if we were by ourselves, we wouldn't need language. We just exist. Oh. Um, and so language gives us me, it gives us a tool to reflect on ourselves and on others. It's a mechanism that we interact with other people. And then it's, at some level, it's the basis of an ego identity. Right. Um, and so a a lot of ways, this question is about, it's kind of grappling the beginnings of grappling with that ego identity.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, guess in order to answer the who you, it has to be in relation to other people. Um, so I guess that who I am really changes based on who I'm with,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: you know, I, there, it's, it's, it's energy again, you know, it's who I am with my mother is a very different person yeah, yeah. than who I am with the person I'm dating. Um, who I am with my brother is very different than who I am with my father. Um, I think that I, I play roles in people's lives. I don't necessarily know what the roles are, um, that, that I've been assigned. I, I know that I am, um, a helper. I like to help, um, uh, and, and that's very egocentric. I like to help others not feel the pain I felt. Am I really doing that? for the good of the other person or for the childhood self that no one did that for.
2: But does that matter?
1: Sometimes I think it does. And sometimes I think it doesn't. I think it does because if you show up for someone because of your own self-interest and you, are you showing up for them or are you showing up for yourself?
2: Yeah. I mean, I grapple with this all the time and, you know, and and I, I don't, I don't know. Ultimately, I'm like, I don't know if you can really differentiate that because even, even selflessness in that way is still implicated in a self process. Um, it's just, is it egocentric and are you, are you doing something that's harmful to someone else for some, you know, it's sort of the intention, I guess, Right. Uh, but at some level, it's still about you know, your own self-process here. It's just a different dimension of a self-process.
1: I think it matters when it becomes problematic helping. Yeah. I've been in that position where I've been the problematic helper and, um, and that's not a good position. And it's, um, and I've, I'm actually actively working on that. You know, I don't need to over help. Um, because it's actually doing a disservice to someone else who needs to help themselves and needs to feel their own feelings, um, you know. So if helping means removing obstacles from someone's life so they don't have to feel pain, that's not good helping.
2: Um, all right, why don't we move on to question four? Uh, which is, what are your dreams telling you?
1: So my dreams are really interesting because it's like a consistent world that I return to. I have, there are stores in my dream that in my dreams that I revisit and remember from dreams of years ago. There are songs that I hear in my dreams that I've never heard before in my life. Um, And there are stories that unfold. And the most, (laughs) I I don't even know how to describe it so much, but I've had one dream, one very consistent dream for maybe 15 years. Um, I have it every once every four or five months maybe. And, um, and it was the same for a really long time. And it was about my high school boyfriend who was my first real love. And so you sort of assigned to that true love, Uh true was the first true representation of what love feels like. And it felt very good. And, um, you know, we dated for four and a half years and then he, you know, we went our separate ways and um, we sort of reconnected in adulthood and he, it wasn't right for me. It like didn't do it. It wasn't, I didn't feel what I had felt, but he did. Um, And I, I sort of rebuffed him. And so I've had these dreams where we meet again and i um realize that i should not have rebuffed him and that he is my home and he is my real family and we should get married and have uh, a family and and like live the life we've we've always wanted to live and he's the one he's the one and then he's thrilled and happy and you know we end up together so that was sort of the consistent dream that i had for a long time no changes and then it started to change and i've never had this experience in my entire life but i have the dream and in the dream i say to him what i always say which is you know i i've made a mistake and i think um I want to try again, and I think you're my home. You're my family. You're it. And in the dream, he says, "Well, it's too late. I'm, I'm with someone, and I can't believe it. I like miss the boat, and I'm devastated. And then the next time I dream it, it's like, oh, I've missed the boat, but you can be part of a thruple. <laughs> <laughs> like, That's okay. I'll pause. and then the next time I dreamt it he was married already and so it's been this really interesting evolution of a dream and like I know what it's trying to tell me it's so fucking obvious but um, but it's also really interesting to like I feel this like wild deep pain in my dreams but I feel this wild deep joy as well Uh in the same dream about the same person um, or the same circumstance. So I think that my dreams are telling me uh, what I already know, which is how I want to feel, how I Mm. truly want to feel.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Let's move on to question five. Amanda, how, now, what are you feeling?
1: Um, Earlier before this, um, my dog always barks when someone's at the door and she was barking, but I didn't think anyone was there. So I opened the door and there were these two little boys waiting for the elevator. And, um, at first they were really afraid of the dog who is this big. Uh And, um, so I was like, no, she's the sweetest thing in the world. Come here. Don't, don't be shy. Let's, you know, come and meet her and give her a treat. And they got so into it and I was giving them treats and they were feeding her and doing high fives. And like, I was just watching these, these moments are really important to me because I don't have kids and I wanted them and I, I don't have a family and I wanted it. So I take every moment that I can, and I, and it makes me happy, and it gives me joy that these two children who are not in my life are in my life right now. They're here right now. And we're having uh, joy together. And then uh-huh. they'll leave. And um, I'll have moments with kids bring me... Uh, a ton of joy and um, mainly because I don't live with any
2: uh, <laughs> true.
1: <laughs> so I get—I am luckier in a way than a lot of parents because I, I get the good stuff almost only, mm-hmm. always, you know? Um, yeah. so I, I, I am very happy, um, when I'm connecting with someone and I feel, um, when I, when I feel like I see them or when I feel like they see me.
2: Yeah. That's great. And, um, describe your joy. Like how, yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: Like you're a somatic person. So where, where, where's your joy coming from?
1: So it starts, um, sort of right above the, um, pivot, like the dip in your rib cage that divides your rib cage. Um, it starts about, about there and it's, sort of spreads up like wings. Um, and it feels light and expansive and like very specific to my life. So it feels like, um, a perfect, um, like weekday in the summer when I was a teenager in Central Park smoking with my friends. Like it just was like <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just was like absolute freedom and openness and anything is possible. Anything. Like the world is full of possibility. And that sense of um openness brings me a lot of joy because as a child nothing was possible for me. Uh-huh. It was, i was so limited that now joy is the sense that i'm not limited
2: i mean it's it's also interesting that both of those come through your thorax like this it's the the fear is the is kind of the gripping in the body core mm-hmm. and um in the joy is the expansiveness of the body core yeah um it's it's funny that nobody ever sort of says yeah i feel you know joy in my elbows
1: uh yeah because elbows suck they really you're only aware of them when they hurt
2: yeah yeah exactly yeah i'm I'm sure there's some there's probably some joy that's in them it's just it it takes a really concentrated effort to kind of go there (laughs) question six who's writing your life story
1: living is a type of writing in a way it's like, you know, it's, it's expression, constant expression. So I, I feel like my life is writing my life story and my friends are writing my life story and my family is writing my life story and no, you know, and no one's all those stories. If you line them up would be wildly different from one another. Um, and I, I feel like I, I tried to write my life story as a memoir, Um, But even that fell short because it was really about anxiety and panic. And that's just a part, a large part, but just a part. So I I feel like- But
2: do you you feel like writing your memoir about your experience with anxiety and panic was a way of rewriting your life story in a way? Because so much of your early life had been dominated Mm -hmm. by that And was the act of actually writing a memoir a way of reclaiming your life in the face of that kind of narrative thrust?
1: I don't know if it was a way to reclaim, because I never unclaimed it. Um, But I, I feel like it was an important step in becoming stronger and more congruent with myself,
2: uh-huh.
1: able to see your narrative, um, in you know, order being able to write a specific narrative of your life, I think is, is very important for anyone. Um, because our lives have patterns. They have, um, they have patterns that we can't always necessarily see unless we write it. <clears throat> so, um, so I feel like writing it was a way not to reclaim it, but to claim it because I had never really done that. Uh-huh. Um, yeah,
2: that this. You know, we were talking about like where some of these questions came from, and the motivation for this question came from when I was working with my students, and a lot of them have what my my friend Elizabeth Keefe, who's a therapist, describes as the gold star trajectory you know, they, they basically have gone through their life collecting all the gold stars. Mm-hmm. So they got all their good grades and they got into the college of their choice and they're mm-hmm. going to get their degree and they're going to get their great job and they're going to have this great family and they're going to collect their gold stars. And then they get, you know, this big reward. Right. And, you know, the reward is a myth and yeah. the, and the problem is the gold star trajectory is a myth too, but it's a myth that they've just internalized. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to earlier, probably to, you know, make their parents feel good. Right. Um, and so in that case, you know, your life story is the one that a lot of the, the one that a lot of us inhabit was a story that was a family legacy story. It was it was mm-hmm. a story that was, you know, and so it it's only later in life when, you know, we're in midlife when we realize we've collected all our gold stars and, you know, things are still dissatisfied um, that we were like, wait a minute. Um or for, or at least, I think, for a lot of people. Um, and so I'm always, I'm and I'm curious, is in the act of, of, of memoir writing, too, is kind of, to me, is a way of pushing into that? Is, is it, was that your experience?
1: Well, I'm not sure if I understand what you mean by pushing into that. Um, I feel like my memoir was about how I never reached the gold star ever uh-huh. um and that you know the things i've wanted i never got um and so the question is did i really want them yeah you know and um
2: and what was your answer
1: i i'm i'm writing my way there
2: well you know it's interesting we were, it, this is, seems analogous to the whole discussion we were having about helping mm-hmm. um so you know if you don't get the things that you think you want, did you really want them? You know, like in that same way, like, you know, well, how do you know, you know?
1: (laughs) Right. I mean, I feel like I, I brought this up earlier, but a lot of my life story has been trying to undo what happened to me or didn't happen to me or, you know, or didn't happen for me. Um, you know, I feel like m- almost all of my adult life has been spent not rewriting my life story, but um, trying to understand it, uh, 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 trying to understand what was written for me as my life story by other people uh, m- the first quarter of my life. And and then the next quarter, or again, no math, but the next part of my life has uh, the last section of my life has been about um, trying to come to terms with everything and sort of undo whatever damage was done in order for me to actually start to live my life. Um, So I feel like I'm, um, I'm living my life, but not as the person I want to be. And the person I want to be is there. I'm just not there yet. Mm -hmm. I can, I can feel what I want to feel like, and um, and I I I feel like I'll never, I don't feel like I'll I feel like I'll get there, but that the experience of feeling how I want to feel isn't going to be so lasting. It'll just you know come and go as everything else does.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, we can move on to question seven mm-hmm. um which in some ways, I think encapsulates a lot of our conversation, which is, um, do you own your shit or does your shit own you?
1: Well, I think it's like joint custody. In some way. <laughs> um, it's a shared responsibility. Um, I feel like you can't grow if you don't have some shit that is, feels like it's controlling you. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't use the word own, but, um, You know, I feel like my life is is a constant um, battle against lifelong patterns that have held me back, Um, and so I'm just sort of constantly wrestling with my bad habits and the things that hold me back, and the fear I have that holds me back. And without that, I I wouldn't be who or where or how i am so i feel like my shit informs my life and what i do and how i do it and where i do it and without it i'd i don't know who i'd be or how i'd be i need it in a way it doesn't uh-huh. own me and i don't own it but it's a it's like a shared it's like a little bit of a tug of war, you know? It wins a little yeah. Tuesday. I pull back a little Wednesday. It pulls back a little Thursday. Friday, yeah. I get really over the You know, like, it, <laughs> it, uh, it's, I'm in, I'm in conversation with it. Yeah. You know? So I think the answer is neither. Yeah. And both.
2: Yeah. That's great. Um,
1: I'm, I'm weirdly, uh, this is a weird word to use, but I'm lucky in a sense because um, I feel things so, so strongly that they interfere with my functioning. So I have no choice but to face the thing and to resolve it or to step towards it. And it's unthinkable for a lot of people, uh, but I have no choice Because I'm so, you know, it's, that's, it's not my shit owning me. It's my emotions sort of steer me. Uh And I'm at the point now where I'm like, okay, emotion, I hear you. I got it. I have a deadline. Like, I hear you. I have a deadline. So you can stay here because I know you will, but I have to do something Action oriented, goal oriented. So I'm going to do that. I know you'll still be here. I'll return. I, you know, I'm able to like um, have the pain and do what I need to do. Yeah. Anyway, it's, it's monstrously hard, but it is something that I have trained myself and, and practice all the time. You're never, you're never there. You're never at the place you want to be. I think it's always just a practice. You're always practicing. I think at least, you know, maybe unless you're like a, a guru, but even then I think, you know, you can't know what you don't know. Um, so I just, I feel like for me, um, I'm, I feel, I feel things so strongly that I know what it, I know what it means. I always know what it means. I And then there's a space between knowing what it means and what am I going to do about it? And that space can last (laughs) for a week or two, but it's so uncomfortable for me. It's so painful inside my body to live like that. Yeah. That the only way to get rid of it, the only way to relieve it and give it to like give it relief is to face it, is to go toward the pain. You have to go toward the suffering. You just have to, it's the only way to get stronger and to, you, you don't necessarily get over anything, but you get stronger at feeling that same thing later.
2: Yeah. You know, my, my therapist always tells me, it's like, uh, Eric, you need to go into your pain. But I'm like, how? And the, the, I think the challenge from like someone like me or a lot of people is, mm-hmm. you know, my natural inclination is to, oh, it's pain. I got to move away from it you know, I got to run away from it or I got to distract myself from it. Um, and right. Rather than sort of saying, okay, pain is an informative signal. It's there to tell me something. I need to listen to it. Um, and I, that's like, uh, like my shit. And this is, I think a lot of what I grapple with are are my habitual ways of not engaging with my own pain. And that's, that's really my shit.
1: Right. Um, I think, a lot of that has to do with the fact that we have separated physical pain from emotional pain and made them two completely different schools where you would never have a physical pain and just ignore it, you know? Um, But we're, and we're sort of raised and taught to, Oh, you're bleeding, put a band aid on it or you're bleeding. Let's get stitches or, you know, um, whatever it is, you tend to it immediately. But with emotions, we're not taught that we're taught to buck up or suck it up or get over it or forget about it. Or you have so much to be happy about. Like people say all these things because they don't know how to do it themselves. So, you know, but if we treated emotional pain, how we do physical pain, we would be much less afraid of what hurts.
2: All right. Question eight: How do you find love?
1: I mean, I suppose it's down to the definition of love, and for me, love, like everything in my life, is is a sensation. Um, it's a it's a sensation. It's an action um, in one, and um, I find love that experience of love, that expression of love everywhere all the time constantly and i i i engage in it i look for it i i'm very good at finding it because they're in the places that other people don't stop and take the time or they don't every morning i i do i have the same routine with my dog every morning and we um we end up sitting on a stoop where she has her dog treat and I have my coffee and a lot of dogs and people and kids there. And every day I have some sort of like communication with a new little kid or a new neighbor or someone who's visiting. And there's always a moment of exchange there that feels like an act of love you know whether it's giving someone um directions but that they want but saying but here's really how to get there like here's the best way um these little moments you know there we have um a guy on uh down the block who who doesn't have a house and he um he used to own a multi-million dollar house on this block that I live on, and I don't know the ins and outs of it, but he lost it, and now he sleeps in a tent um, on the corner. And um, I bring him things and and I, that is I want to. I don't want anything, but I want to because it it's a selfish form of love, but m- seeing how happy it makes him to be seen makes me happy. And I guess happiness is love also for me. Uh-huh. So I guess I just, I find it everywhere. And and it's because I'm looking and open to it. And I will say, I have an incredibly, incredibly easy time giving it and expressing it. But I really have a rough time taking it in. It's very hard for me. I believe the love I give. I don't always believe the love that is returned. And that's me. That's, you know, that's in me and on me.
2: All right. Why don't we move on to question nine? Um, this is our last question, which is, where are you going from here?
1: Well, um, I am literally from here going back to work, then to walk the dog, then to water Nellie's plants. Then I'm going on a date, a first date, and I'm going to ask him all these questions. Okay. Um, <laughs>
2: <laughs> Is that a good or a bad way to have a second date?
1: Oh, it's <laughs> oh. So well, you know, if I if I like him, maybe I won't. Yeah. <laughs> so, if I don't, I don't, I don't I um, uh, you know, I don't know where I'm going from here because he, you know, I don't, I I don't make plans the way other people make plans and I should like in five years, I'd like to be here in one year because things don't work that way. You know, just you make a plan, but you aim for it. It's a goal. You go towards it. But in my experience, it never happens. (laughs) So something else happens. Um, So I guess I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing and, and growing and, you know, learning, learning and growing. That's really all i kind of care about at this moment um and maybe have always only cared about um and my dog um so yeah so from here i'm i'm just gonna continue on hopefully growing taller and wider yeah wow well this has been an amazing experience and oh
2: good good i'm glad you you liked it i'm going to say thank you so much for sharing and all your wisdom
1: of course i mean thank you for asking me it's um there's nothing that i mean few things bring me more joy than having wide-ranging great conversations about ideas and you know what it means to be a human being so um so really thank you
0: If you feel like you're getting a lot out of our show, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show you should check out. It's called Why This Universe. Why This Universe breaks down the biggest ideas in physics. Join theoretical physicist Dan Hooper and soon-to-be physicist Shalma Wegsman as they answer your questions about dark matter, black holes, quantum mechanics, and more on Why This Universe. Part of the award-winning University of Chicago Podcast Network.